Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Mobile phone technology used to be only about the need for speed. But 5G has sparked geopolitical battles, worries about spies, international arrests. America's attempt to control the situation seems to be failing. We ask what its options are. And officials in Sri Lanka thought they were doing a public service by outlawing the sale of alcohol. The public didn't agree. While the administration flip-flops on when and whether to open liquor stores, an army of home brewers is bubbling up. But first... On Tuesday, a driver for the World Health Organization was killed in Rakhine State in Myanmar after his car was hit by gunfire. The attack took place in a region where government troops have been locked in fierce fighting with the Arakan army, which wants greater autonomy for the state and for the Rakhine or Arakan people. Countries including Britain and America have called for an end to fighting amid the COVID-19 pandemic. But clashes have intensified, and the government's flailing response seems to be boosting the Arakan army. In April, the Arakan army declared a month-long ceasefire, but it was rejected by the government as unrealistic. Charlie McCann is The Economist's Southeast Asia correspondent. Fighting between the Arakan army and the Burmese military has escalated over the last two months, as has a war of words that they've been fighting. Each group has blamed the other for firing at the WHO car, which is carrying swabs from patients to be tested for coronavirus. So how did this conflict get its start then? The conflict erupted on January 4th, 2019, Not coincidentally, Myanmar's Independence Day. About 350 fighters from the Arakan army attacked four police posts in northern Rakhine state, killing 13 officers. Now, there had been skirmishes between the Arakan army and the Burmese military before that, but the insurgents had never been quite so brazen. In response, the government, which of course is led by Aung San Suu Kyi, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, instructed the army to crush the rebels. And the military has since deployed an estimated 15,000 to 20,000 troops and deployed heavy artillery airstrikes and and even naval patrols. Despite all this, the Arakan army is actually making some headway. And and so what are the stakes in this fight? What, What is it that the Arakan army wants? Well, the Arakan army are ethnic Rakhine Buddhists who are longing for independence. They feel that they've been neglected by the central government for decades. Rakhine is one of Myanmar's poorest states, and the advent of civilian rule with Aung San Suu Kyi in 2016 um, only exacerbated tensions. 
the Erika National Party won a majority of parliamentary seats in the state of Rakhine. And they believed that Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, would let it nominate the state's chief minister. Instead, the NLD appointed one of their own. And the ANP and, and many Rakhine felt this was a, a great betrayal. That sense of embitterment deepened in 2018 when the police killed seven Rakhine protesters and arrested the ANP's chairman, all of which contributed to further radicalizing the Rakhines. And this is a, a state in Myanmar that is not uh, unfamiliar with, with sectarian tensions. That's right. In 2017, the Burmese military launched its clearance operations against the Rohingya, a persecuted Muslim ethnic minority who also live in Rakhine state. The Rakhine, the Rohingya are two of many ethnic minorities scattered across Myanmar who are discriminated against and are advocating for, fighting for more freedoms, if not independence. And as for the conflict between the Arakan army and the national military, how's that going? The military is suffering terrible casualties, and the Arakan army are are humiliating the military by conducting hundreds of abductions of politicians, businessmen, civil servants, and indeed soldiers. The military is accustomed to siege warfare, not to the kinds of tactics being deployed by the Arakan army, which hides in the jungle, but also operates in urban areas, which takes pot shots at army patrols, but also does all these brazen things like bombings and abductions. And so the military is really floundering in its response. The army's success is really driven in large part by the group's commander, Tuan Murat Neng. I am the leader of Arakan Army, Major General Tuan Murat Neng. Who's educated, he's charismatic, he's young. We have lost our right the right of the indigenous people. In contrast to many of the leaders of the country's other insurgencies, who have been described to me by an analyst as comprising the the Buena Vista Club of guerrilla leaders. The commander recently called on his followers to throw off the shackles of, of Burmese racism and colonialism. So he uses this very rousing language and he harks back to the long periods when Rakhine State was a, a kind of glorious independent kingdom. Every Arakan has a dream in their heart. This slickness is mirrored in the group's social media videos, which feature attractive young soldiers declaring their love for their homeland and engaging in wholesome wrestling matches. We will never, ever give up. And and so with its army on the back foot, then how has the, the government responded to this slick operation? Heavy-handedly. In June, it blocked mobile internet service to about one million people in Rakhine and Chen states. According to Human Rights Watch, this is one of the world's longest government-imposed internet blackouts. Last month, it also blocked access to several news websites that report on the conflict, as well as designating the Arakan army a, a terrorist organization. That then enabled the police to charge several journalists who had interviewed the Arakan army's commander-in-chief with violating the counterterrorism law. And Rakhine civilians are really coming under fire. Amnesty International claims that the military has been shooting indiscriminately at Rakhine towns and has been torturing and murdering civilians. We know that more than 100,000 civilians have been displaced by the fighting, 
and analysis of media reports shows that 42 civilians have died since March 23rd. And so again in Myanmar, we have this example of the military taking an extremely heavy-handed approach against its own citizens under the watch of Aung San Suu Kyi. I mean, her reputation suffered greatly after the Rohingya crisis. How do you see this crisis playing out? Aung San Suu Kyi won the election in 2016 on her promise to bring peace to the country. The fact that her government has instructed the military to crush the rebels, as she put it, has designated them a terrorist organization. There's no way that she'll be able to to bring about peace with methods like those. To me, it looks as if the conflict is only going to escalate. The American army is intent on inflicting so much damage that the government will have to make some concessions. And indeed, you know, it already has. Over the past six months, more than 210 government employees in Chin State, which is just to the north of Rakhine and where a lot of the fighting has taken place, have resigned after being threatened by its fighters. Now, the rebels don't have the firepower to defeat the government militarily, but they might not need to. If they can inflict enough humiliation, the government might decide to retreat from the fight and seek a political settlement. Either way, Myanmar won't see peace for the foreseeable future. Carly, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To get 12 issues for $12 or £12, just go to economist.com slash radio offer. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from The Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. I want to thank you all for being here to discuss a critical issue for our country's future. Winning the race to be the world's leading provider of 5G. A year ago, President Donald Trump candidly set out the stakes in the development of fifth generation or 5G mobile technology. We cannot allow any other country to outcompete the United States in this powerful industry of the future. America worries about Huawei, a Chinese technology giant whose cheap kit puts it at the forefront of the 5G rollout. 5G networks must be secure, they must be strong. They have to be guarded from the enemy. We do have enemies out there. The Trump administration has tried to squeeze Huawei out of the race. It's barred American companies from selling components and software to the company and pressed its allies not to use its equipment in their own 5G networks. But Mr. Trump's plan isn't going so well. Despite a dramatic slowdown in earnings reported this week because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Huawei's revenues have continued to rise, and the company's weaning itself off American components. It might be time to look for other solutions. One suggestion might be encouraging open-source software in 5G networks, which would prevent any one company from having ultimate control. But that would take time to develop, and the rollout of 5G is gathering speed. People talk about 5G being kind of uh, the best thing since uh, sliced bread, but, but actually there's a lot of hype. Ludwig Siegler is our U.S. technology editor. 
from a consumer's perspective, at least, it's not such a big deal. You could get the same improvements with the 4G, the previous generation of mobile technology. But 5G is not actually built mainly for consumers, but for what's called the Internet of Things. So all the connected devices in the world, like the sensors in a factory, driverless cars, all machines will be kind of wirelessly connected. And 5G is supposed to be kind of the technology, the infrastructure to connect those. And why is it that the, the Trump administration has turned this into such a, a geopolitical battle, do you think? So 4G was mainly for people. And that's fine. Okay, you can eavesdrop on people, but that's not such a big deal. When wireless networks become kind of the, the most critical infrastructure, then it becomes much more strategic and, and, and much more politically important. So the leader in 5G globally is Huawei, and they uh, kind of have the most advanced 5G gear and also the cheapest. And the U.S. is, is really worried that if a Chinese company that ultimately kind of depends on the, the Chinese state builds these networks, that they can eavesdrop on what's happening in these networks. Now, eavesdropping is, is one problem, and I think you can solve that with encryption. But there are other problems. So if you are the company that kind of controls those networks, you can slow them down, you can even shut them down in case of a war. And that's kind of what the Trump people are really worried about. Or presumably taking control of some of the things in, in the Internet of Things. I mean, is, is that, do you think, that the principal concern that the Trump administration has, or is this more of a more strictly geopolitical fight? I mean, that's definitely also a concern, kind of that, that China could take over self-driving cars in the U.S. Now, it's a question whether that's actually realistic or will ever happen. But it's certainly an important point that if you have a company based in a country that you don't really trust or the government of which you don't really trust builds a critical infrastructure in your country, that's a huge problem. No, no, that said, I mean, Huawei is already bad in the U.S. The U.S. is more worried about what, what its allies are doing. So Germany, the U.K., Japan, and so on and so forth. And so it's put, uh, the, the U.S. government has been putting a lot of pressure on these allies to not use uh, Huawei gear for its 5G networks. And so how's that plan, that, that sort of absolutism about Huawei worked for America? Is, it, is, is, is the plan working? So, so how is that, that war against Huawei, in, in, in quotes, doing? So they're not doing that well. I talked about the allies. Only three allies at this point, countries have said they won't use 5G gear from Huawei. That is uh, New Zealand, Japan, and Australia. And the others kind of are dithering or have already decided that they will use Huawei uh, gear, at least in some parts of the networks. In particular, that's the case in the UK, and, and the other thing is, of course, that Huawei is not, I mean, Huawei is suffering uh, to some extent, but it has actually done quite well. It recently announced new results, uh, financial results, and posted a 19% rise in its annual revenue. Also, what uh, kind of the war against Huawei has done is that it's given Huawei additional incentives to, to become independent from U.S. technology. And it's not at this point, but you can see when you kind of tear down the, the, the most recent Huawei devices, uh, smartphones, that they're using fewer U.S.-designed chips. So it seems to me that the U.S. will not manage to really rein in Huawei and force the world not to use Huawei gear. So yes, the war is going badly for America. So what choice does the American administration have then if it wants to continue with this war that at least in the, the early stages it's badly losing? I think it has to kind of rethink its approach. In, in a world where technology and people basically flow freely, it's really difficult to build a wall around one single company. Ultimately, it'll get the technology it needs, and, and, and we see that with Huawei. So the alternative is to look at how the American industry or technology industry has actually thrived in recent decades, and it has thrived in open standards, open source software, and you can see that in cloud computing. Cloud computing is basically turning 
computing into a utility, into something like electricity. And that's been based on on, on open source and uh, open standards and, and, and all that. And I think they have to approach the 5G problem, the Huawei problem, in a similar manner by basically fostering, promoting an industry that's based on open standards and software and all that. That's where America has has strengths. And actually, in the industry that, that's happening, mobile networks are slowly but surely becoming more like a computing clouds. And what the U.S. government should do is kind of foster or speed up that development. And I think that's a much better strategy than trying to reign in a single company and seeing this as a kind of zero-sum race. So the plan there would be to to employ a number of different countries, a number of different standards, and, and sort of cobble everything together rather than have one company, one standard, one black box. I mean, is, is that doable? Does that not present its own dangers? Yeah, it's, it's of course, not a mature technology, uh, but but just to sum up this approach, it's, it's a right now... Mobile networks, at least the, the, the important parts of mobile networks, the edge, kind of where the antennas are, are built one by one company. So if you buy Huawei gear, at least in one market, you, you have to stick to Huawei gear. And so the idea is to introduce standards there so you can mix and match and you can build this equipment for different chips and, and antennas and all of that. So you create basically diversity. And once you have a system with diversity, you're not dependent on one vendor like Huawei or its main competitors, Ericsson and, and Nokia. And that's what's happening in computing clouds, is that these companies, the big computing cloud providers, Microsoft or or Amazon, they build, basically, they build their own computers. And that not only makes the whole thing cheaper, but it also allows you to source your components from places you trust. So it would be much easier to build a network in in that kind of system, a network that runs without any hardware from from China. And so it, it puts you at ease when it comes to those security risks. I mean, that takes the geopolitics entirely out of this question altogether. I mean, how, how do you see this playing out in the long term, do you think? It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't solve all the, the, the security problems. And, and then also, it's, it's not a mature technology, so it will take some time. But I think it makes it easier to solve that uh, the geopolitical problem using basically using technology, using standards. And it will help us not to perhaps in a few years live in a world where we basically have two technospheres, a Chinese one, and a Western or an American one, which will have kind of different standards. And you, if you have your phone, you will have to have a Chinese phone or an American phone, which of course makes things much more expensive and also kind of slows down innovation. Thanks very much for joining us, Ludwig. Thanks, Jason. This week, Microsoft announced plans to embrace open data. Babbage, The Economist's science and technology podcast, spoke with Jenny Tennyson from Britain's Open Data Institute. I think that Microsoft is one of the first really big tech companies to not only say nice words about open data, but actually put some funding uh, and some data behind it. For more, listen to Babbage, available wherever you get your podcasts. There's a patchwork of lockdowns around the world, each with its own restrictions. But officials in Sri Lanka have come up with one that's proving hard to enforce. First, it said liquor stores, or wine shops, would be shut down. That caused the kind of panic buying that pretty much precludes social distancing. Then it said wine shops would reopen periodically and briefly when other uh, essential stores do. But 
the queues for booze were so long that some people failed to get essentials, such as food. So authorities shut the wine shops altogether again. It seems, though, that the Sri Lankan people are more enterprising and more thirsty than officials might have hoped. The home kitchen brewing is really new in Sri Lanka. I mean, in all the years that I've been a journalist, I've never really heard of people making murky liquids in in their kitchens. Namani Vijitasa writes about Sri Lanka for The Economist and is based in Colombo. But now everyone you know seems to be doing it because people need a drink. So why did authorities prohibit alcohol in the first place? They prohibited alcohol because there was just too many crowds outside the liquor shop. The excise officials told me that it was the place that had the most crowds during shopping breaks. It's not a typical lockdown situation where you get shops open and you can go out and buy your provisions. Everything is shut unless you get a delivery when you have shopping breaks, which is every few days when the curfew is lifted in the areas which don't have too many cases of virus. Then people go out and buy. They're supposed to queue up with a meter distance in between them. That didn't happen at all because they have only a few hours to do their shopping. And a lot of the time, people were just queuing up outside the alcohol shops and there was no distance. There was no way of controlling them. Okay, talk me through it. What what is the homebrew recipe here? Basically, you just need water, yeast and sugar to make liquor. And you can just search it on YouTube and you can get it in any language that you want. And whatever is accessible to you, you can just follow simple instructions to produce liquor. They experiment as well and they've put in plums, grapes, apples. I know lots of things that are going into these brews. Trust me, they don't look nice and they don't smell nice because of the yeast content. And actually, yeast is in short supply now. So now they're looking for ways to manufacture yeast with sugar and water. So it's it's really going into another dimension. So the authorities clearly cracked down on the buying of legal booze. Are they trying to crack down on the home brewers too? Well, this is really difficult because I was talking to an excise department official and he's like, I mean, we can't creep into kitchens. That's for sure. We don't know where it is. But lately, the police have been able to crack down on certain of the home brewers. They said that they found 18,000 cases of illicit brewing and the excise department said they found 500. But the excise department is more likely to have caught the bigger brewers, which is really the traditional moonshine, which you get in massive barrels more than what you get in home kitchens. So do you think when the ban is eventually lifted in the sort of the after pandemic era that this culture of homebrewing will will stick around, that everybody will be making their own tipple? It's not very pleasant. Even the excise department feels that it won't continue as a habit. What people just want now is a beer. It's just... It's been a long time since they had any alcohol. It's too expensive to get whatever is available. There are no stocks now, even if they want to. People in Sri Lanka like to drink and they like to socialize over a drink. If there's a bottle, they just gather around there and they drink it to the last drop. So it's cultural here. And it's been very difficult for people to cope. But when the liquor stores open, I really doubt that they're gonna go into that mess in the kitchens again. Nomini, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, when you get a chance, cheers. Thank you, Jason. Cheers to you too, but I hope you get the good stuff.
to follow all of The Economist's coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic and all the ways, large and small, that it's swiftly reshaping the world, visit economist.com slash coronavirus. That's it from us. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.